get us through this morning tonight anyway. All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. We also have the parallel text in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. I read through uh, each of these last week. And we may do a little bouncing back and forth, but I think predominantly we'll use Matthew 20 as our base text. The Ambition of James and John, episode 27, uh, 37, in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus Christ. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you, and he switches to the plural here. He's not talking to the mother. He's talking to the two boys. Y'all do not know what y'all are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup I'm able to drink? And they said to him, we are able. All right. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, making sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful once again for your grace and especially on this day in uh, restoring a class we had thought we were going to cancel. And uh, thank you for the uh, all of the volunteer effort that came in here on Monday and just abundantly uh, got the place packed and, and uh, ready to go. So, Father, we're thankful for uh, this extra opportunity to have another class this week. Uh, we are packed and ready uh, for whenever you, Father, and your sovereignty determine that, uh, that we will move to the new building. Uh, we are in your hands. We're not at the mercy of the city and the permitting department. We are uh, in your hands of sovereignty and grace, and we thank you for that. But Father, we do pray for your uh, guidance upon our study today. Open the eyes of our understanding. Uh, teach us the lessons that we need to learn regarding uh, self-promotion and self-humility and uh, impress upon us not just simply uh, an academic understanding. We can teach that in, in 30 seconds. But Father, impress upon our souls the reality that uh, self-humility before your glory is that what you expect for us. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Isn't it amazing how a subject as simple as humility can be taught academically or intellectually in, in 30 seconds or less, and yet we spend the rest of our lives trying to learn the truth uh, on an experiential basis uh, based on our pride and our humanity and everything else. We spend the rest of our lives learning about the humility that Christ exemplified and that the Father expects. So, uh, picking up where we left off a week ago, we have really four points of study in this uh, outline, and we covered three of them last week, and so we can wrap up point number four here today. Um, there is a discrepancy of sorts, not a discrepancy we have problems with, but the differences in the accounts, Mark records James and John as the questioners. Uh, but Matthew records their mother's mediation. And so that is a distinction in the narrative accounts between Mark's record and Matthew's record. Uh, as we saw and we've seen repeatedly in this Life of Christ uh, series, it is not uh, contradictory to the point where we have to say, well, this is true and that is false. The minute we accept something as being false in the canon of Scripture, we might as well just hang it up. Uh, we're done if God is a liar. God is not a liar. God's word is truth, and we understand that. So if there are divergent um, accounts, we understand that's the case in any eyewitness record. When there are divergent accounts, we harmonize them uh, in such a way that we identify that both are, in fact, true. God is not capable of revealing a lie, and we accept that. And so uh, as we reconcile this, of course, uh, even with the mother as the mediator, bringing the question nevertheless it remains the truly it's the boy's question not hers and uh and we have no problem understanding that did a little bit of work with zebedee and mrs zebedee and who they are uh we have the 12 references to zebedee in the new testament there's really only one story that features him uh, the literal person i think all the other references are just to the fact that um the paternity references for james and john 
have his name cited. Mrs. Zebedee, or Mrs. Z, if you want to call her that for short, uh, she appears twice. She appears in this episode, in this story, where she's trying to influence the Lord and uh, try to score some uh, some box seats, or I don't know what you think of these. These are assigned seating, uh, which is more than just simply um, a, a venue where they can view things. The seating actually entails authority, entails glory, entails the eternal ruling responsibilities that are awarded on the basis of faithfulness. And uh, so this episode is the first time that she appears. We also see her standing at the cross. And uh, we did a little bit of work on this. I don't know if you did your homework or not. uh, Draw your parallel columns and and list these women that are mentioned as being at the cross. But a careful reading of of all the accounts, Matthew 27, 56, uh, Mark 15, verses 40 and 41, John chapter 19, verse 25. Also, Mark 15 spills over there into chapter 16 and verse 1. Uh, I think we can clearly identify the mother of James and John as being Salome by her given name, her personal name, and as well as being uh, the sister of the mother of the humanity of our Savior. So in other words, the, the formerly Virgin Mary uh, who gave birth to our human, uh, the human birth of our Savior, you know, you know the one the Catholics worship. The, the, uh, her sister then uh, is Salome, and that makes James and John cousins with uh with jesus uh, as far as that goes we moved on and uh, saw that although the mother may have voiced it the request remained theirs his answer uh, was to question the two disciples and that's that's universal that's true whether you're reading the matthew account or the mark account his reply goes to them in the plural not her in the singular what was happening here was that the sons of thunder hoped to score some prime seating This is point two in the outline. They were hoping to circumvent the procedure. They were hoping to reserve their seating prior to, uh, you know, reserving rather than deserving. How about that? Uh, The seating as far as being deserved or being awarded on the basis of faithfulness, being granted on the basis of fulfilled ministry, see. And I think um, when it comes down to it, every study I've ever seen, pertaining to what we deserve in rewards uh, also has to uh, identify the fact that even what we think we deserve in terms of rewards on the basis of faithfulness still are undeniably applications of grace. Uh, The applications of grace as it pertains to his grace and faithfulness that allowed us to bear such fruit, that allowed us to work in such things. And I think there's a closer relationship between um, the grace and, and the uh, the rewards, then maybe we uh, we need to do more work with that. But be that as it may, it's not what we're going to tackle today. They thought they could reserve these seats. And uh, Jesus says, nope, this is the Father's business. He will distribute them. And uh, that, too, becomes a, a point of study. All judgments given to the Son. But understand that the awarding or the rewarding the after the judgment is not the Son's purview. The Father did not delegate that. The Father has withheld that. And so uh, try to separate out the granting of, of uh, seating, the granting of authority, the granting of, of eternal position and so forth. That's a factor after the judgment has been given. We stand in the judgment seat of Christ and all judgment's been given to the Son. But when we're complete with the judgment then, who is it that's going to assign the seating? It's going to be the Father, not the Son. And uh, that is a detail we don't want to miss out on in, uh, in this outline as well. Uh, such seating as the father's sovereign choice and the son will not manipulate the father in this uh, you can't pull strings you can't manipulate the father by uh, arranging for an agreement with his beloved son and if the son will not manipulate the father how sad is it for these cousins to be using their mother in such a way the fact that they would use her to try to come and influence um, a request uh, from him it is interesting, you know, we don't venture uh, into speculation or realms of speculation uh, for different things. Not sure what that is. Um, but if Salome is not the, the sister of the humanity of the mother of our Savior, if she's not the aunt of Jesus, if, that, if we're not correct on that identification, I think we are, but if we're not, then why bring her into this? 
why uh, why would James and John rope their mom into going and talking to Jesus? What what sets their mom apart from Peter's mom or Andrew's mom or James the Less's mom or or Judas Iscariot's mom? I, we joked a little bit last week about Mrs. Iscariot. What, what kind of mom has she been like in raising a Judas for a boy? Kind of a thing. Um, I, I think it's only natural and it's only um, appropriate then for those passages to harmonize and recognize that Salome is the uh, sister of uh, of our mother. Because if it's not, then what's the point of the story in having her come and do that? And, by the way, if she's not the sister, then why that reference at the cross that that Mary, the mother of our Savior, was there and her sister was there? Well, who cares? If that's the one and only time in all of the Bible we ever hear about her sister, um, what's the point in mentioning that if if uh, her sister is not also Salome, the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John. So uh, keep in mind, of course, that all scriptures God breed. Nothing is pointless. The idea that uh, that Mary's sister is also there uh, has to have a significance or wouldn't be included. And uh, and so this, too, becomes part of our uh, part of our deductive reasoning in putting this information together. All right. Point three, then Jesus challenging response challenging response uh sometimes they say there's no such thing as a stupid question i I think that's wrong there's plenty of stupid questions out there uh but they also say um what else do they also say um a challenging question or an inappropriate question does it deserve an answer or should it deserve a challenge back saying uh clearly the the boys are out of line in trying to in the in the very request that they have it wasn't from the holy spirit laying that on their heart all right. You know, we, we understand that if we have the request which we've received from him, that we can go to him in prayer. And we can ask and whatever we ask, believing that is whatever we ask with the faith mechanism, we, we will receive. And we're confident in that because we know that the request which we have, we have received from him. And that's that's the beauty of going to him in prayer and asking for the the desires of our heart, because he's given us those desires of the heart. Well, is that what's happening here? <laughs> Did the Holy Spirit lay it upon these boys to say, hey. Let's rope mom into this and get her over here and kind of manipulate this and try to try to get some seats uh, reserved. Try to uh, assert our alpha dog status now over Peter and Andrew and these other disciples. See, it's a power play is what it is. And he nails it. He absolutely nails it. He says, you guys are acting like Romans. You're asking like Gentiles in this. Okay. So, no, it didn't come from the Holy Spirit. That's not who was motivating this question. We need to be aware of that. When pride starts to creep in and when other whispering voices start being listened to, that's a danger. David listened to a whispering voice. And if, and if he did, uh, all of us better pay attention that uh, we've got to identify that whispering voice and crush it, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. So uh, he gives them a challenging response. And, and I believe that's a pattern. We ought to imitate that. That we have to stop just the inklings of these pride rebellions before they can uh, before they can foster, and he indicates that the seating assignments are going to be based upon victorious cups and baptisms. Uh, we will be seated in glory based upon our faithfulness to drink the cups that he assigns, based upon our faithfulness to undergo the baptisms that he assigns. And I know just on the basis of the last three years that uh, that John Carnegie and uh, David Pickett and all of our deacons and Scott Grubb, our architect. These these men that have been dealing with these antichrists down there at the Austin City Council, <laughs> uh, they've they've gone through a baptism, and uh, and they're going to have reward, and I appreciate that. I'd have been forget I, I'd have probably been in prison if I'd have had to go through half the stuff they had to go through. I just thank God that He gives me such deacons and men that can handle the paperwork, and the administration, and the and the red tape. As far as that goes. Well, what is the cup? The cup is what he provides. And it may not be what we want, but it's what he provides. And the cup he provides is what we're expected to drink. And uh, drinking is our volitional acceptance of that provision. And, and even if it's suffering, we've got to drink it. He handed us the cup. The cup can also be one of judgment in a very negative way. He's about to drink this cup of judgment. He's going to accept the judgment of humanity. And he's going to drink that cup himself. So we don't have to. Some other principles that apply here. Let's move on today, though, and gain point four. 
Yeah, we covered that. Point four then. The ten. Who are the ten? The other guys. Not James and John, but the, uh, the non-cousin disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, the ten, including Judas. All right. So when you're lumped in with Judas, are you on the right side here? The ten became indignant. And Jesus exhorted them to exchange self-exaltation for self-humiliation. The ten became indignant. And Jesus exhorted them. I believe he exhorted all twelve. He gives a combined message here. He had the, the challenging question, are you able? And they said they were. But then when the ten becomes indignant with the two, Jesus called them to himself. And who's the them there? Uh, grammatically, you could limit that to just the ten. Uh, but I think it includes the, the ten and the two. I think it's all twelve. And he gets them all together. And I'll give that to you here as a subpoint. He calls them to himself and said, y'all are acting like Gentiles. And you shouldn't be. So Jesus exhorts them to exchange self-exaltation for self-humiliation. When you go into a self-promotion mode, uh, you are an imitator of the adversary instead of an imitator of Christ. You are imitating the one who boastfully proclaimed his five-eye wills and launched forth a program of all the things he was going to do for himself. The ranks he would attain to, the glories he would achieve in dissatisfaction to what the Father assigned. And uh, the two are becoming imitators of that and trying to score seats that they're not entitled to. Satan lusted after a seat, a couple of seats. And uh, the father said, you're not entitled to those. I think that the ten becoming indignant as well uh, reflects, of course, I think they're, uh, who are they indignant at? Were they indignant at the two or indignant at themselves? Um, uh, why were they indignant? They wish they would have thought of it first. <laughs> you know? They upset that their mother wasn't uh, wasn't the sister to his mother. What, what were they upset with here? Um, the idea of lording it over, the finding the edge, finding the angle by which we can assert our dominance. That's a very worldly way of thinking. Now we've already done a study on indignance. It's not that long ago, four episodes ago. So sub point A, indignation has already been detailed, and I'm not going to go into it today. But it was in the episode uh, 33 of the last Eugenian Priam ministry. Uh, the one Jesus blesses the children, remember that? And uh, they, the disciples tried to keep the kids away. And uh, so we did the vocabulary work on anak, I'm sorry, aganakteo, uh, number 23 in the Strong's Concordance. There's only 22 that are alphabetically ahead of this one. Uh, aganakteo has seven uses in the New Testament. And uh, if you want to track those down, just go back and get the, the messages from episode 33. Uh, you will recall, though, a couple of just uh, short principles here. Um, the attitude beneath it is the attitude of resentment. Okay, it is an anger. It is an anger, but it's different from other. It's different from orge for wrath. It's different from other expressions of anger. Uh, most of which, many of what, uh, other terms for anger speak of the heat, speak of the passion, speak of the emotion. Uh, this is an anger that uh, is based on the resentment. The attitude that something is wrong, something should be different. And, um, for example, that the, these children shouldn't be coming. These children should be somewhere else. And Jesus became indignant as well. No, the children should be coming. You guys need to back off. Okay. The idea behind the resentment is that it is a disagreement over what's happening and a desire that something be different. All right. And so the resentment is the underlying attitude behind this kind of anger. Uh, however, it's not always carnal. In most cases it is, but the illustration with Jesus shows us there can be and should be a legitimate indignation. Scripture says, be angry yet do not sin. So there is a place for uh, what theologians or, or Baptists, or I don't know, who, who invented the term righteous indignation? Okay. No one can. No one knows exactly who claimed it, but you know it's a coined term, and, and we use it. And it's probably appropriate to find some unique expression that distinguishes between the the, the anger that's not sin and then the just the temper fits that are sin. Okay, righteous indignation, and it comes as a resentment if it's a legitimate resentment based on the fact. Well, here's what the world's doing, and here's what it ought to be. 
And, there, and that is a legitimate mindset, at least because God himself communicates that. We did see, though, in most cases, um, the seven uses of the New Testament were pretty much all carnal, other than the one positive example we have when the Lord became indignant um, towards his disciples. So, I uh, won't spend much time on that. But in order to, point B then, in order to address the indignation of the ten, see, they're wrong for their indignation, and he has to get them. In order to address the indignation of the ten, Jesus had to teach an immediate class to the twelve. And I believe the them there, when he calls them to himself, that this is a emergency session. <laughs> All right? This is uh, an immediate uh, ministries on hold until we get this class put together. And um, he calls them to himself. He summons them. Like being called to the carpet. And he says, you know, you know, this has to be addressed in immediate class to the twelve. You know, I, I think there's um, just uh, an application of wisdom, all right, in any leadership capacity. For, uh, you know, Christ to his disciples, so we, we draw an application, maybe a pastor to a flock or, or a husband to a wife or parents to children or in any capacity where there is authority and where there is a teaching expectation. Um, and when there is something that has to be remedied, do we, um, on which occasions do we uh, faith rest and, and stay quiet and patiently watch and grow and see, well, you know, uh, keep an eye on this and, and, and see if, uh, if maybe with some uh, grace and some time and some growth, maybe uh, the Lord will bring, uh, bring somebody through some of these applications of immaturity. All right. In which case, uh, maybe we don't have to immediately just jump all over somebody and rebuke them and cut them down. Maybe it's a point where we can stay, stay quiet and stay prayerful and watch and, and so forth. Uh, or there's other occasions where you can't stay silent. You can't just say, oh, well, let's just watch and hope as Scripture saturates the soul that they'll grow through it and they'll grow. It might be so dangerous and so divisive and so immediate that you cannot let it go. All right. And so, uh, you know, there's an application for wisdom there, knowing there's a time to speak and a time to remain silent and knowing, well, which is it? <laughs> okay. Um, you know, in Proverbs, it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. And then in the very next breath, it says, answer a fool according to the folly he deserves. So which is it? All right. And this becomes, I think, uh, an application then for, uh, you know, in wisdom for spiritual leadership to discern. Uh, is this so important, so critical that it cannot slide? It cannot wait. We have to deal with it now. And clearly that's the decision the Lord came here. And they call them together and he's got to hash it out right here, right now. Or they're not taking one more step towards Jerusalem. Okay. By the way, if you want another passage that goes with that, it's the one in First uh, Thessalonians. That uh, I think, I'll get you a verse here in just a moment. Um, 514 showing us that there are times and places and there are circumstances and you have to have discernment in knowing what is what and which is which it says we urge you brethren admonish the unruly encourage the faint-hearted help the weak clearly there's three different classifications there and three different activities one is appropriate to each category and you don't want to just come in and admonish someone that doesn't need the admonishment because maybe they're not unruly. Maybe you might appear to be unruly, but maybe they're just faint-hearted or maybe they're weak. You've got to know what is the condition, what is the need, what is expected. And then, of course, patience applies to everybody. Be patient with everyone. You can't lose with patience, all right? But um, to, to jump all over somebody and rebuke them as if they're just a, a volitional rebel... That may be out of line because maybe they're not a volitional rebel. Maybe they're just weak. Maybe they just need to grow. Maybe they need, uh, and, uh, you know, here they're just a tender, tender little plant shoot coming out of the ground, and, and they need that gentleness and that tenderness and that, 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 uh, to grow, and, and you just stomped on them, right? So what happens to your dandelion then? You just crushed the thing on down in there, didn't you? 
anyway, this uh, back to Matthew then. I think Jesus uh, evaluated this and said, no, this has to be immediately dealt with. We have to speak to this. And so he does, which is point C. Gentiles. Gentile political power plays. Because you guys are just doing a power play here. This is like office politics. What are you doing? And of course, in his day and age, it was Roman, and they mastered it. Gentile political power plays form the antithetical illustration for Jesus' humility teaching. You know what an antithetical illustration is? It's the bad example. <laughs> okay, It's the opposite. It's the one you don't want to do. The key is that we, we, we hope we recognize that we're all illustrations. We're all setting the example. Uh, the sad thing is we're supposed to be setting the positive example. And when we're not, we're setting the bad example. And, uh, and the Lord uses both to instruct. Uh, we just want to be the positive example in, in every application we can. Uh, we don't want to be the negative example where God holds us up in front of other believers and says, see that, see that discipline, see that sin and death, see that. You don't want to do that. Right? We want to be the positive illustration. Well, he says, you guys are following the negative illustration. You're following the antithetical illustration. You're imitating these Gentiles. Like Paul, when he tells the Corinthians, you're walking like mere men. I can't speak to us to spiritual men, but as to carnal men, as to babes in Christ. You guys, your carnality is keeping you from growing up. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. We have two layers here. The rulers are at the pinnacle and then the great men are, are just below that. Um, and there's, so there's a distinction here being drawn. And then we'll have two the other direction as well when it comes to humility. There's a, there's a neat, uh, they call it chiasm. There's a... There's a um, structure here to this this message is is beautiful in its poetry and its symmetrical structure but you know that the the rulers of the gentiles lord it over them to lord it it takes a noun and it makes it a verb okay which uh you know a lot of languages do that ours does uh greek did almost every language probably does takes uh, takes a noun the noun is lord the noun is is like our lord our, our curios but turns it into a verb and then a compound verb actually with with uh, kata in front of it we have five sub points here number one the ruling ones the ruling ones and the verb here for lord it over is our compound of curios kata which is um when it's prefixed like this, it tends to indicate a downward motion or a, um, an intensifying uh, feature. Curieuo, K-U-R-I-E-U-O. And, uh, of course, the inner stem within this word is the etymology there for curios, for Lord. K-U-R-I-O-S is the noun for curios. And um, four New Testament uses here, the, Ma- the Mark text, and then First uh, Peter five three. So let's grab that one. First Peter five three, and we understand that lording it is not ever uh, appropriate, even when authority is legitimate. This domination is not acceptable. Kata curiuo to to subject somebody under your lordship. You know, I mean, even when, as I said, even when the authority is legitimate, when you have to impose it viciously or impose it forcefully, then what are you doing? What are you doing with force and severity dominating them? What are you doing? And so in First Peter 5, we've got the parallel here that brings it into a local church context. But Husbands over their wives, parents over their children, other authority venues can draw, you know, in secondary application can glean from this principle. Um, what does it mean to have servant leadership? What does it mean to be in subjection one to another as unto the Lord? As it says, shepherd the flock of God. This is the exhortation of Peter to the fellow elders. He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Okay. Not 
claiming papal sovereignty here, okay? He's just a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. In other words, somebody that's been humbled, somebody that learned from the episode we're studying today, somebody that the hard way, denying Christ and being humiliated and being uh, suffering, uh, learned what it means to uh, to be a leader in the church. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it. This is our verb. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. So this does not deny the authority in fact it reinforces the authority those allotted to your charge communicates the uh the principle with respect to flocks with respect to congregations and shepherds and and the idea that as a shepherd has responsibilities towards the sheep the pastor has responsibility towards the souls and that's the flock of the congregation the souls have been allotted assigned entrusted to the human shepherds. And yet not for tyranny. Not for force and severity you have dominated them. Okay, This goes back to Ezekiel 34. And the language that's found there with respect to the, the faithless shepherds of Israel. But proving to be examples to the flock. True leadership is not force and severity. But is leading by example demonstrating that this is the Christian way of life. This is subjection to Jesus Christ. And when the chief shepherd appears, interesting, all the terms are to hear. you got elder, overseer, shepherd, right? And we've got a study in this coming up. In fact, we've got a, a, a few special classes we're going to give in the new building as it pertains to some ecclesiology issues and things there. But shepherd, overseer, elder. How are these interrelated terms uh, applied in, in uh, local church polity in different applications. Well, you've got elder in verse 1. You've got shepherd in, as the activity in verse 2. You've got uh, the exercising oversight activity. There's your overseer, your episkopos in verse 2. And yet the one who gives the uh, eternal reward is not the chief elder. He's not the chief overseer. He's the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd. And this body of people that are being cared for are not called children. They're not called overseen. They're called flock. Okay? So shepherd the flock of God. Doesn't see oversee the underseen ones or, you know, doesn't say be an elder to the younger ones. It says shepherd the flock. So in the three different terms for the. Uh, the authority, there's only one term for the, uh, the object of that care, and that term is flock. And this is why we see the preeminence of shepherding as the primary activity and the title, uh, the ark poimain. Yeah, forget about the archangel. How about the ark poimain, the ark shepherd? And that's what we have here. That's who rewards. When the chief shepherd appears, guess what? Are you anticipating, demanding, expecting reward prior to glory? Then you're premature. Reward will come when the chief shepherd appears. And it's going to come from the Father. It's going to come. You can't reserve your seat ahead of time. So ruling ones, lord it over the ruled ones. If your focus is ruling, then who is it you uh, have in your crosshairs? The minions, the lackeys, the ones to be ruled. And I find that to be extraordinary as well. It's actually been commented upon recently in, in political commentary in our nation. That the, our present administration has used the term rule on several different occasions in different contexts. And it really is unique. Because prior, or at least in previous administrations and generations and centuries... Uh, our nation was governed. Our nation was represented. We have representatives. We don't have rulers when it comes down to it. We're not supposed to. But it's interesting the way the language has changed. The, the mindset has changed. 
we have rulers now. At least they think they rule. All right. And the ruled ones are uh, growing discontent with being ruled and want to be listened to. I think that's a fair description of the political commentary I'm listening to these days. And so it'll be quite remarkable. Uh, Our congregations ruled to God designed the flock, to God designed local churches, is the body of Christ designed to be ruled or is it designed to be shepherded? And is that shepherding designed, uh, expected to be led by example, proving to be an example to the flock? Time and time again we realize it's not cattle to be driven, but sheep to be led. And uh, there's, there's huge differences there when it comes to the uh, shepherd leadership of going forth before them and the sheep hear my voice and they follow me and he leads them and, and uh, all the things that happen there. All right, so these are the ruling ones who lord it over the ruled ones, bringing them under the lordship, bringing them under the lordship. In so many ways, that's the definition of Islam. Enforcing the submission, coming under the submission. That's not what we're about. All right. And then there are the great ones. The great ones. And this appears to be a, a level just below the ruling ones. They themselves have attained to a degree of greatness. They themselves have a level of authority. And they are hoping to move up to that pinnacle status. Great ones. And here's another noun that has become a verb because the noun is authority, exousia. That has been compounded with a kata prefix. So, kat exousiazo. Kat exousiazo. So, just like kurios prefixed a kata and made a verb out of it, exousia prefixes a kata and makes a verb out of it. Kat exousiazo. And the only two times in the New Testament are right here in Matthew 20 in the parallel text of Mark 10. But they enforce the authority. The great ones authorized over. And who do they authorize over? The non-great. Okay? The non-great. In other words, um, might makes right. In other words, the, uh, the authority of the authority. And uh, it's uh, pretty descriptive for this fallen cosmos when it comes to the... Uh, one thing you you got to say about uh, <laughs> one thing you got to say about Darwin, and the idea of the survival of the fittest, um, it was a, a pretty accurate expression of cosmos wisdom, in terms of the uh, the weak or the strong preying on the weak and different things. Hmm. Continues to boggle my mind though. Why is it that all these leftist, tree-hugging Darwinians, why are they so passionate about endangered species? I mean, if you're going to be Darwinian, then be Darwinian. If they go extinct, well, oh well. (laughs) You know? But anyway, I shouldn't be boggled because I understand the, the mythology only serves the purpose. I don't think they even believe it themselves. All right. So are we here to lord it over? Are we here to authority it it over? You know, uh, when it talks about um, force and severity, you have dominated them. Is that what uh, authority is supposed to be? Is that what the Lord exhibited? Is that what the Father exhibited? Is that what husbands are called to do? See, no. That That is only the tyranny of the fallen cosmos and uh, countless passages we could point to with respect to that. But I think you understand the issues there. We don't need to necessarily spell it out. All right. So the, the ruling ones at the top, the great ones underneath, and now we go to great ones and the pinnacle. We give the positive example here in this structure. Then for disciples of Christ, greatness is derived by deacon service. For disciples of Christ, greatness is derived by diakonos, deacon service. Let me get back to my text. Matthew chapter 20. Verse 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great one, the great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. So there's a difference between them and you. There is normal for the way the world works. And then there's biblical for what's expected of us. It is not this way with you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. You know, the, um, the desire itself, is the desire wrong? Is it wrong to desire greatness? Well, in the carnal way, of course. But what about in the, in the acceptable way? In the acceptable way? Is it, is it inappropriate if you want to be a great pastor? You want to be a great husband? You want to be a great wife? You want to be a great mother? You want to be a great evangelist? You want to be a great whatever? If he's called you to be something, is it wrong to want to have greatness associated with what he's called you to be? I don't think it's wrong, so long as it's in the biblical parameters, meaning humble, meaning servant-minded. I don't want to, I mean, the, the reward, think about it, the reward is well done, good and faithful servant. There's not a reward for, the, for, for, for mediocrity, Okay. So wishing to be great is commendable when it comes as a response to wishing to exalt the greatness of our Savior. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Great is the Lord and greatly is he to be praised. I want to praise him with greatness because he's worthy of it. And, and with that as a mindset, it's not wrong. And likewise, when we talk about the uh, office of overseer in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. God doesn't say, oh, well, you're just prideful, you're boastful, you're wrong because you want to be a pastor. He doesn't say that. If you desire, it's, it's a fine work. It also says, you know, look out. <laughs> Let not many of you become teachers. Brass that you incur a stricter judgment. But the desire itself, if it's, if it's molded and shaped by what he's provided, there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly legitimate. I want to be a great pastor. I want to be a great husband. I want to be a great father. So far as we understand, it's God's definition of greatness, not ours. <laughs> okay? And clearly it's not the world's definition of greatness. You know, run through your list of everybody that has the title The Great after their name in, in the history books. We don't want to go there. Okay? So, uh, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. It's deacon service, diakonos. Diakonos, number 1249. There are 29 New Testament uses. There's also some verbs and other terms. Uh, but we'll just leave it with this because that's the term. We've got two terms for service. Well, there are more than that, but the two primary ones, okay? Diakonos and doulos, and they're both right here. The diakonos is the table servant. Uh, the doulos is the bond servant, the slave. That's the, the pinnacle. That's the lowest of, of service. This one, so we've got a progression here. Okay? We have a progression from the rulers who lord it, the great men who authority it. Okay? And then we've got the great men uh, on our side who have the diakonos servant mind, mindset. And then the pinnacle is the doulos, the bond servant mindset. The ones that don't even own ourselves. See, a diakonos owns himself and serves another. But the doulos doesn't even own himself. The doulos is nothing but property of the one that he's serving. And so there's that progression, you understand. So, um, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And this is the, this is the uh, indicator for how a man is prepared to be a pastor. Is he willing to serve? If he's not willing to serve, then he's not ready to lead. He's disqualified. What kind of pride is that? Okay. You know, that's why with these guys that are under training right now, they, they get used in a lot of different capacities. And they're, they, get, they teach Sunday school or they teach other classes or they, they volunteer in the nursery or they work the recording desk or they do all kinds of things. See. And, uh, you know, a man once upon a time said he wasn't willing to work in the nursery. All right, that's interesting. Uh, or felt it was beneath him to teach children, but he wanted a spot in the Sunday night rotation. 
Really? Okay, that's interesting. Why is something beneath you? And uh, where is the hard attitude with respect to that? The things you take take note of. Um, becoming as your servant. And the reason why Joshua was so suited to follow after Moses because Joshua served Moses faithfully as a child from his youth, as his servant, and uh, was able to then to lead Israel into the land of promise after the death of Moses. All right, then the other parallel here. For disciples of Christ, not just greatness, but preeminence, whoever wishes to be first, preeminence is derived by bond service. That's a step beyond deacon service. So you see the progression from diakonos to doulos. D-O-U-L-O-S, doulos, number 1401, 126 uses in the Greek New Testament. As I say, they both render service. A diakonos would be like a table waiter, um, a servant who himself is free. Um, so he, at least he owns himself, even though he might be serving on behalf of somebody else. The doulos does not own himself. The doulos is entirely the property of the uh, of the one and, and completely at the mercy of the one. In the Roman law, if you wanted to uh, to put your slave to death, no one could question that. You put your slave to death. In fact, under the pater familia principles of, of Roman law, that same thing went to wives and children as well, as far as the authority of the father in the home. Uh, but the preeminence here derived by bond service. So to whatever extent you draw the line, you draw the line at diakonos service, then you can attain to greatness. But if you... D- don't draw the line until you reach the doulos mentality. Then you are eligible for the preeminence status of reward in glory. How humble have you become? How sacrificial have you become? How, uh, what has your mindset been with respect to your own personal ownership? Do you come to the point where you say, you know what, I've been bought with a price. I am no longer my own. I'm not my own. I don't belong to me find that interesting all the pride and the arrogance of well it's my body i'll do what i want to blah 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 it's not yours you have sovereignty over you wait a minute who bought you all right preeminence is derived by bond service the fifth point and this is the conclusion then his personal illustration is to be imitated jesus's personal illustration is to be imitated when he tells them here whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant who's he talking about talking about himself he is setting that example he's not just teaching them this and living something else he's not just preaching be humble while he himself is boastful and prideful and arrogant and 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 all that and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave Just as, and here's the example in verse 28, just as my message is consistent with my life, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay? And I think that serve is the duluo, is the same verb from doulos. I don't have my Greek text open at the moment, but understand, are we here to serve or be served? Are you here to serve or be served? Uh, why is it you want to enter into ministry? <laughs> so you can be served or so that you can serve? Uh, why do you seek any position of responsibility or authority? Why do you want to become a teacher? Why do you want to become a deacon? Why do you want to become a parent? Why do you, become, why do you want to get married? What do you hope to achieve as a husband? You know, is it for what you get? <laughs> you know, or for what you give, for how you serve, for what role you play to the glory of Jesus Christ, for what I can accomplish as a married man that I could not do as a single man? Or is the whole focus just a selfish, um, whatever, selfish reasons why folks get married? Okay. So we have it here in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. This verse here put so many things into perspective when you ask yourself wait a minute the attitude check why am i doing this to be served or to serve 
Why am I doing this? John 13, Upper Room Discourse, verses 14 and 15. In this section here, in John 13 through 17 through chapter 18, in this stretch here, we have a powerful discourse that Christ gives. It's not pertaining to uh, Israel and their eschatology, not pertaining to Old Testament theology, not pertaining. We have here passages that relate directly to these disciples and what they can anticipate after he goes. It's foreshadowing of church age information. Church is still mystery. But these chapters in John, uh, just pay attention in, in upcoming classes. We're going to break down for you why John 14 is talking about the rapture, even though church is still mystery until Acts chapter 2. We're going to break down for you what the impact is of John 13 through 18 or 17. Uh, what is the significance of this upper room discourse here? And why was it not given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Why was it withheld for inspiration until it was composed in the Gospel of John decades after uh, the other Gospels were written and after the church was started. What is the impact of this message and why is it primarily ecclesiastical? Okay, So pay attention to that as we, as we get into these later chapters. But uh, in John 13, 14, it says, If I then, the Lord and the Teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. That's why... Uh, we become imitators of Christ. We will be followers of Christ. That's why Mohammedans are followers of Muhammad. What did Muhammad do in his plundering and pillaging and, and raping and all the, the terrorism activity that he took part in? Okay. That's their tradition. That's their the one they imitate. What do you expect? I gave you an example. You should do as I did to you, humbling himself to wash their feet. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. You could even back up a little bit if you wanted to. There's principles in verses 1 through 4. Understand verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, this is addressed specifically to local church interrelationships, but apply it in a marriage, apply it in a family, apply it in a workplace, apply it wherever you want to apply it. You can't lose by applying this passage. It's a win-win every time it's used. Um Humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, it may not be true, okay? The other person may be, uh, you may be more important than the other person, just in a pure, objective situation, okay? It may be that in the workplace, you are far more critical than they are for the job assignment or what have you, okay? It doesn't matter. You still have the humility of mind to regard the other as more important. And so you treat them as if they are your superior. And that's the humility you manifest towards others. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, so, so many of the world, it's just you're out for number one. You don't even have time to think about their needs or their feelings or their expectations or even, you know, the fact that they have feelings. It's just, well, <laughs> please me. Okay? No. The attitude is... The interests of others have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, because he's the pattern. He's the prototype. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Understand that that is a direct rebuke to the fifth. I will of Satan. I shall be like the most high God. And here's God, the son who was like the most high God, who was in the beginning with God, who was in the beginning God and said, it's not something to be grasped or attained to or claimed or insisted upon. In fact, he does just the opposite. He emptied himself, laying aside his privileges, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, limiting himself to a monopresent physical existence, 
limiting himself to a um, knowledge, an accumulated knowledge of the human experience. In other words, uh, sovereignly choosing to limit or, or curtail his access to omniscience. Choosing to limit what he taps into as far as what he can't stop knowing and he can't stop being. He can't halt his omnipresence or he'd quit being God. He can't halt his omniscience or he'd quit being God. But in his sovereignty and in his omnipotence, he can curtail the use of such attributes. And never once does he tap into omniscience. Not once. Not once does he tap into omnipresence or omnipotence. Every miracle is spirit-empowered. And uh, things that are usually attributed to omniscience are not omniscience. They're prophetically revealed based on his prophetic office. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality of God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, a doulos, and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The pinnacle of his humility is what entitled him to the pinnacle of his glory. That he has a name above every other name that is ever named by virtue of the humility. For this reason also God highly exalted him. Now this, this boggles the mind. You're going to chew on this and, and there'll be occasions where you'll like it and there'll be occasions where you don't like it and you, there'll be occasions when you say this can't be right. How can he have a greater glory than he had of an infinite glory before the incarnation? Okay, What's greater than infinity? Well, maybe infinity can't figure it out, but God figured it out because God gave him a greater glory. God highly exalted him, bestowed on him a name which is above every name. And, and this is an aspect of exaltation that the Father does not bestow upon the Spirit and the Father doesn't even claim for himself. But God the Father awards this, bestows this recognition and this exaltation and this glory to the Son because of what the Son did in his humiliation. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this becomes our pattern. And the believers are going to have the maximum reward at the judgment seat of Christ are going to be the believers that had the maximum humility here on planet earth. That served. And so uh, if your attitude is not one of service, but serve me then expect uh, the minimal award, if probably the nothing award, the, the wood hand stubble bonfire that leaves nothing but your resurrection body uh, for the, uh, the other side of the, of the bema. His personal illustration is to be imitated. So this ambition of James and John, you know, the, um, the idea of taking the lowest seat of the table, you know, and then if, if in fact the uh, Lord or the master of the table invites you to move on up, then, hey, count that a, a blessing. But just take the lowest seat there and assume that you're not even entitled to have that seat. See, you shouldn't even be in the room. Why am I in this room? Why am I at this table? So take the lowest seat at this table, knowing you don't even deserve this table or this room or this palace or this town. All right. And then when he says, oh, no, 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 move up here. Understand that's the pattern that we have. It's going to be interesting. How's this, how's this passage? We're done with this passage, by the way. How, uh, how's it going to preach? I know how it preaches now in, in 2010. Is this 2010, 2011? What year is it? Here on earth. How's it going to preach in eternity? Wouldn't it be something? And I don't know. None of us knows. But wouldn't it be something if James and John have a relatively low seating? Well, how could that be? How could... How could well... I mean, John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He reclined on his breast. He took care of his mom. Clearly, he has to be ranked up there in the... Why? Doesn't it not say the first shall be last, the last shall be first? Maybe the foundation-laying apostles will uh, will not be the highest awarded believers. We, we don't know. We'll find out when we get there. But it will be interesting to see uh, where they end up based on the fact of the seats they tried to score for themselves here. <laughs> You know, who is it that's going to sit on his right and his left? 
Maybe they'll be sitting in the James and John Memorial right and left seats, and, uh, and they're going to be the most obscure, humble, servant-minded martyrs that uh, the church never knew about until the Bema. Chances are, whoever the maximum rewarded believers are, we've never heard of them. But the Father who sees in secret knows all about them. And they're going to glorify Christ for all eternity. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this bonus class. This class we canceled and uncanceled and had a chance to have it anyway. And what a delight. Father, uh, we are in your hands as far as this move is concerned. Uh, we don't know entirely yet how uh, the rest of the week is shaping up. But uh, the indication is, is the, the confrontation on Monday seemed to be pretty uh, beneficial. And uh, we should, within the next couple of hours, have a, have a water meter on the site out there. So we're thankful for that. Uh, whatever else is necessary to uh, to finish the paperwork, to clear the red tape, um, whatever is re- required to receive the certificate and to move. If we can't move till Friday night or if we can't move till Saturday or we can't can't move till Monday or Tuesday, Father, it's all in your hands. It's all in your hands. Maybe we'll hear a trumpet tonight. None of this matters. Father, well, the unbelievers can do whatever they want to do in that building. But, uh, Father, day by day, moment by moment, it is your glory, and we thank you for it. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.